أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا ونبينا أبي القاسم المصطفى محمد وآله الطاهرين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله brothers and sisters and welcome to this uh, session of Mizan Live we had a couple weeks off uh, for winter break but alhamdulillah we're back continuing our sessions if you remember last time we ended on we ended the chapter on res- death and resurrection and so now it's time to move into um, a new chapter so far from Tawheed all the way to Ma'ad and resurrection I said these are conventional topics that we have in our theological books from Tawheed all the way to resurrection prophethood, imama being part of that as well from here on Ayatollah Subhani in his book what he wants to do is he wants to address um, certain topics that are not in the conventional theological books but at the same time these are topics that might be more contemporary um, or more relevant to the times we're living in today I'll explain, what the, I'll give examples um, as we go on. The first example, the first thing that he speaks about is the matter of faith itself. What constructs faith? And what are the main elements of faith? And if we figure that out, then we can figure out what disbelief and lack of faith is. Why does he want to talk about these issues? What, what makes them so relevant? Well, first of all, his book, this book of Doctrines of Shia Islam, as he said in the beginning, is a compendium of these beliefs that the Shia Imamiya have. And so this book is supposed to be representational of all of our beliefs. In other words, if a person who's not a Shia Imamiya, or an Imamiya Shia, excuse me, if they want to know about Imamiya Shiaism, what can they do? They can pick up this book, right? They pick up this book, and regarding any any part of theology that they have a question on and the beliefs of the Shia, they can look it up here and find the article regarding that topic and see what the Shia believe in. So if that's his uh, motivation for this book, that was the purpose of him writing this book, that others can refer to it, he has in mind also those who might label the Shia as or might want to label the Shia as non-Muslim sometimes, or as um, mushrik sometimes, things like that. He wants to address issues in a way that they will get their answers as well. And so that's the purpose of, the, one, of the, one of the reasons of this book. <clears throat> and so that's why he starts talking about what, what, com- what Iman is made of and uh, what constitutes Iman versus Kufr. So that people out there who might not be from the Shia Imamiya faith Understand that at least if they're Muslim, it doesn't mean that the Shia Imamiya are not Muslim just because they don't share certain aspects of the faith with others. This is a very important topic right now because, of course, once again, he won't go super in-depth, but he will touch on certain matters. He will scratch the surface regarding certain topics uh, so that people know there's something at least going on here. We have something to say in this regard. So, article number 120 is talks about the the definition of iman so brother is asking what is the name of the book again this book uh, it's called doctrines of shi'i islam a compendium of imami beliefs and practices by ayatullah jafar subhani 
And yes, people have told me that there is a digital version online as well somewhere. So that's that. Hopefully you got your answer. <sighs> okay, so he get, in article number 120, he gets into um, the, uh, the meaning of faith, and the meaning of iman. First the lexical meaning, and then what the Shia mean by this, or what Islam and Islamic theology means by this. So let me pull this up real quick. MashaAllah, we've made it a long way, 120, article 120. It says, Correctly situating the boundary that separates faith from disbelief is one of the most important of all theological issues. Faith, or iman, signifies confirmation, tasdiq. So iman and tasdiq, these are synonymous, he's saying. When you do tasdiq, you confirm something, you verify something as true. Iman has the same meaning, he says. While disbelief, kufr, literally signifies covering up and covering over. This is very important, brothers and sisters. I've said this here and there, that when we say someone's kafir, it doesn't necessarily mean non-Muslim. It means more than that. A person who doesn't know the truth and has not embraced it, in the Quranic sense, might not be considered a kafir. Kafir means they know the truth, yet they cover it up. Here it says, Disbelief, kufr, literally signifies covering over. So it's even it lies even in the uh, the lexical definition of the word. Covering up is lies in the term kufr. All right. So it says, but in theological parlance or theological terms, um, what this means is what this. Uh, Kufr and Iman can mean are, one, give me one minute, excuse me. Yes. <clears throat> so our camera is off. We'll just, inshallah, try to fix that as soon as possible. So in theological terms, faith signifies belief in the oneness of God, in the day of judgment, in the message of the last prophet, and, of course, Belief in the message of the Prophet of Islam. Okay? So he says these are all part of Iman. We all know this, brothers and sisters. And when you believe in the Prophet of Islam, it implies acknowledgement of the prophecies brought by all previous prophets and revealed books. The Quran even talks about this as well. La ahadin min The Quran says that the people who have faith, they say, we don't believe. We don't separate other prophets and their teachings. They're all one, as if, because they're all calling to the same. Uh, they're all calling. They all, they all have the same message. While following all the doctrines and rulings brought by the Prophet of Islam. All right. So where does uh, iman? Where is the place of iman? If I want to go find where iman lies, he says, the true place of faith is the heart of man. As the Quran says, they are those whose, upon whose hearts he hath written faith. So as you probably all know, Iman is something that has to do with the heart. It lies within. You can't really gauge it uh, because we don't have access to the heart of the people. Right? And that's why, that's why people sometimes might verbalize faith, yet it hasn't entered in their hearts. And since it has not entered in their hearts, they really don't have faith. And the Qur'an points this out as well. 
Yeah, the Quran says, وَلَمَّا يَدْخُلِ الْإِيمَانُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ So some people back during the Prophet's time, they would say, Aslamna, we have embraced Islam. We have, uh, excuse me, Amanna. They would say, Amanna, we bear faith, we believe. The Quran, but they were liars, they were hypocrites. So the Quran says, don't say you um, have faith, but rather say, Aslamna, that you, we are submitted. Yes, and we're, not, we're going to listen to the Holy Prophet, but did faith actually penetrate their hearts? The Quran says, وَلَمَّا يَدْخُلُ الْإِيمَانِ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ Or فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ That faith has not actually sat in your hearts. In other words, the place for faith is in the heart. Okay, so this is all clear. He says, if that's what Iman means, then kufr and disbelief also becomes clear. Whenever a person denies the oneness of God, or the Day of Judgment, or the message of the Prophet, evidently such a one will be judged as an unbeliever, is be, will be considered a disbeliever. Since denial of one of the axioms of the religion, implying therewith denial of the integrity of the message, is tantamount to disbelief. Um, I don't know, I'm sorry to say this, but they, uh, sometimes they just overcomplicate the wording of um, the translation. So look, brothers and sisters, sometimes... You disbelieve in God, you disbelieve in the Prophet, you disbelieve in the Day of Judgment. Sometimes you disbelieve in something that is equal to disbelief in one of those uh, pillars of the faith. So for example, someone might say, I believe in God, I believe in the Holy Prophet, I believe in the Day of Judgment, but I don't believe in prayer at all. Now, not believing in prayer is not something like, uh, prayer is not something that is kind of insignificant in the faith. Prayer is one of those axiomatic beliefs and tenets of Islam because it's meant, been mentioned so many times in the Quran, so many times in the Ahadith that one becomes 100% sure that this is part of the faith so you can't believe in God, the Holy Prophet the Quran and the, the Day of Judgment but then say I don't believe in prayer because that means that you don't believe in the Quran because this is something that the Quran has established 100% it's not your um, you know, your minor fiqhi ruling or something that yes, wudu, when you do wudu, you have to do it like this, you know. Or like uh, when you want to pay zakat on the amount of sheep you have, this is how much you have to pay. Okay, that's something that sometimes people might say, oh, I don't know if, that, if that's something that Islam really wants or not. But there's some things that you're 100% sure about, like salat. Not believing in salat, he says, will equal not believing in the Qur'an, the Prophet, because we know that they've said this. All right. So that's that. What's interesting is that in this um, translation that I have in front of me, <clears throat> certain parts have not been translated. So I'll just read off of the Farsi book that I have in front of me. He brings um, certain hadiths, Ayatollah uh, Subhani, to show that, uh, the, that what the extent of faith is. Yes? He talks about different degrees here of faith. It says when the Holy Prophet was sending Imam Ali to, to Yemen, or excuse me, to Khaybar, to, uh, to, when, when there was a battle with the uh, Yahud of Khaybar, the Imam asks the Holy Prophet, he says, how much am I supposed to fight? He says, قَاتِلْهُمْ Alright, so he says, go fight them, and when you fight them, 
Fight them until the point where they say, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. That's all that's necessary of them. That is faith over there. Yes, if it has not entered their hearts, that's something that's between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But this is enough for them to become part of the Muslim faith. That's all that matters. Another story. It says that someone asked Imam al-Sadiq salam, what is the least, what is the bare minimum for someone to have faith? The Imam answers, says he testifies that there's no God but Allah and that the Holy Prophet is the servant of Allah and the, and the messenger of Allah. And he admits to the obedience of God and knows the Imam of his time. If a person does that, then they are mu'min. There's a little reservation regarding this hadith. I'm not going to get into I'll just skip it. Alright, so anyway, the point he's trying to make here, Ayatollah Subhani, is that the, 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 the definition of Iman is the basic faith that we all know about and embracing them, and Kufr is the opposite of it. But what's more important now is, and this is something that we need to talk about a lot, speakers need to talk about, we have this trend now, we have this notion of, you know, faith, all that matters is to believe, once you believe, you're good to go. Don't worry about actions too much. The Holy Prophet will intercede for you. The Imams will intercede for you and so on. Article 121 uh, discusses this matter and its veracity. So it says, it says, Although the reality of faith pertains essentially to heartfelt belief, it has to be in your heart, it must not be supposed that this measure of faith suffices in itself for salvation. Because brothers and sisters, listen, what do we want Iman for? What did we want faith for to begin with? We wanted it so that it, it brings us salvation in the hereafter, right? Faith that doesn't bring us salvation in the hereafter is no good. So that's what we're really after, salvation. He says here, it, it's a mistake to think that faith alone suffices for salvation. Rather, the individual is obliged to act in consequence of his faith. Faith has to push us towards acting upon it, accomplishing the obligations that flow from faith. For in many Quranic verses and hadiths, the person of true faith is defined as one who is bound by the, by the wajibat of the faith and fulfills the religious duties incumbent upon them. Thus, we find in Surah Al-Asr, that all people are accounted as being in a state of loss except with the exception only of those who have faith and have righteous deeds with the faith. These are people who are an exception. So the, the Surah Al-Asr is one of the shortest surahs of the Quran, if not the shortest, where Allah, He says, that everyone is in loss. Everyone on the face of the earth is in loss except the ones who bear faith and do righteous deeds. It didn't just say have faith. It says faith plus righteous deeds. These are the people that won't be um, in loss. Another uh, <coughs> example. Imam al-Baqar relates that a man asked Imam Ali, is it the case that anyone who testifies to the oneness of God and to the message of the, of the Holy Prophet Muhammad is a believer? Sallallahu alayhi wa what did the Imam reply? The Imam replied, Well, what about all the duties of God, the wajibat of God, the things He's made incumbent upon mankind? What about that? 
So this person asks, is it enough for me to bear testify that God is one and the Holy Prophet is his messenger? He says, well, what happened to these then? And this is a, he's saying that it's a powerful way of saying that, no, it doesn't count. It's a stronger way of him saying that it's not going to count. When he says, فَأَيْنَ فَرَائِدُ اللَّهِ Then what happened to the fara'id of Allah? He could have said, no, it will not count without the fara'id of Allah. <coughs> he didn't say it like that. He said, where did those go? In other words, it's a given that that's part of faith as well. Of course, a person who doesn't do their fara'id, the brothers and sisters, let me explain this, is still Muslim. We have to understand that. But what you're supposed to get out of being Muslim, what you're supposed to be, get out of being mu'min and a believer, which is salvation, you won't get. And so as a result, it's as if this person is not a believer to begin with. This is a metaphorical way of speaking. Sometimes we, we have this across our hadith corpus, we will have this type of wording. So for example, the imam will say, La salata li jaril masjid illa fil masjid. A person who neighbors a masjid yet doesn't pray in the masjid, this person doesn't have prayer. Their prayer doesn't count. Does that mean that this person has to make up their prayer again? Not necessarily. This means and signifies that your prayer, what you were trying to get out of it, since you're next to the masjid yet you don't go to the masjid, you're not going to get what you're supposed to get out of this salah. It's as if you don't have salah. Or else you have prayed and you won't have to make that prayer up probably. Same thing here now. They asked the Imam in the pre, like five minutes ago, we had a hadith where the Imam says, All you need to do is say that I believe in God, I believe in the Holy Prophet, and a few of these types of things, and you're good to go. Good to go meaning you're Muslim, you're Mu'min. But now here the hadith says, But what happened to the fara'id of Allah? What happened to the wajibat of Allah? What is meant here is that, yes, this person still is Muslim, is Mu'min. But what they were trying to get out of it, they're going to be missing out on. What they were getting out of this uh, iman and this faith was eternal salvation and felicity. You're not going to get it out of that. Okay, since you're not going to get it out of it, it defeats the purpose. It's as if you're not a Muslim to begin with. Okay, so I think that's enough explanation of that. Another hadith by Imam Ali salam where he says, لَوْ كَانَ الْإِيمَانُ كَلَامًا لَمْ يَنْزِلْ فِيهِ صَوْمٌ وَلَا صَلَاةٌ وَلَا حَلَالٌ وَلَا حَرَامٌ Look, Imam Ali is saying, look, if faith was just a matter of words uttered, right? If faith equaled me saying, أَشْهَدُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَأَشْهَدُ أَنَّا مُحَمَّدًا رَسُولُ اللَّهُ صلى الله عليه وآله. If that's what it was, لَمْ يَنْزِلْ فِيهِ صَوْمٌ وَلَا صَلَاةٌ Then there would, Allah would not have sent next to these words that we have to say, Next to these beliefs that we have to have, Allah would not have sent fasting and prescribed fasting for us, prayer for us, halal for us, haram for us. He wouldn't have done any of that. The fact that He's done that as well. I mean, this is common sense. I don't even know why we're wasting our time on this. God sends matters of faith to us. says, I want you to believe in these. And I also want you to pray and fast and all of that. And then we're going to sit here and talk about how, hey, does it really, do we really have to fast and pray for that to be part of our faith? Does that, is that something that constitutes our faith? Brothers and sisters, who cares about whether or not it, we have faith or not? What's for sure is a person who doesn't have these things, these actions next to their beliefs, it will not bring about and yield for them felicity and salvation. And that's why we want it to be Mu'mineen to begin with. 
these hadiths are very nicely illustrating this idea that yes, there is action also involved in faith. Another hadith by the eighth Imam, Imam al Rada alayhi salam, where he says, Al Imanu Ma'rifatun bil Qalb wa iqrarun bil lisan wa amalun bil arkan. That faith is three things. Ma'rifa bil qalb. So I have a cognition, understanding, acknowledgement of God in my heart, one. Two, I, that, that belief in my heart manifests in the tongue. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, ashhadu anna Muhammad rasul Lisan means tongue. And iqrar means to admit something. So an, an a, a admittance of, um, uh, through the tongue and, and speech. Verbalization. Amalun bil arkan, and it's also made up of action through the body parts, the arms and legs that Allah has given me. Yes, the eyes and tongue and ear, the ears that He's given me. All of these have to be used the way He wants them to be used. This is part of iman. This hadith is saying. All right. So, once again, He stresses here, Ayatul Subhani, the difference between how these hadiths are actually speaking about the higher levels of Iman that are going to get you salvation, or else to be Muslim and to be able to roam freely in Muslim lands, for example, during the Holy Prophet's time, and to be a citizen of that land, yes, it's enough for you to say that you're Muslim, or if you want to remain non-Muslim, of course there's other ways that you could be a citizen, but to be Muslim and to be safe and to be taken care of and all that kind of stuff, all that matters is just to say it, but if you want that to help you in the in the day of judgment, then these things are also necessary. Actions are also necessary, and it's get and it gets very scary sometimes that um, people will talk about. You'll hear this here and there that okay, I have love of Ahlul Bayt, I have love of the Holy Prophet, I have love of Allah. That's enough. That's gonna get me somewhere. That will get you somewhere, inshallah, but it won't get you everywhere. That might get you somewhere, but it might not fix your barzakh. Imam al-Sadiq said, I fear for my Shia of the barzakh, because they might not have done everything they, they were supposed to do, and they have to, do, they have to pay the price at least in the barzakh. We'll take care of them, yawm al-qiyamah, but in barzakh we might not be able to take care of them. So these all are, are all things that we have to keep in mind, that should push us forward, and not let us be content with just, oh, I love God, I have faith in my heart, etc. Now, having said all of this, Ayatul Subhani is not going to uh, go uh, lose focus of what he was after in even formulating this chapter, putting it together. Why? Because he says, towards the end of this article, 121, he says, listen, if this is what faith is all about, having the right beliefs and maybe some action and all that kind of stuff, then why is it that we are going to vilify each other, do takfir of each other, call each other people that have left the faith just because we don't, we don't bear certain beliefs that others do bear. It was a basic belief of Tawheed, Nubuwa and Ma'ad and some of these actions that everyone agrees on like Salah, like fasting and all of that. So is there room for us to do takfir of each other, call each other kafir? Because of the slightest differences, he says, no, it should not be like that. And that brings us to Article 122, where he really wants to like drive this point home of people, what are you doing? Why are we calling each other non-Muslims sometimes? 
It says, insofar as the Muslims of the world are unanimous as regards the three fundamental principles of Islam. There are no grounds for one group of Muslims doing takfir of another group and calling another group kafir, considering them non-Muslim, simply because of differences in respect of certain secondary applications or details. For many of the principles over which there are differences of opinion pertain to theological questions that were expounded some considerable time after the period of the revelation. Each group having for its own position certain arguments and supporting evidence. This is something, first of all, that doesn't just have to do with Islam. All faiths have this. So for example, in the Catholic faith, there were... Um, there were beliefs that had to be voted on or decided on through councils when 4th century AD how many years after Jesus is that yes that's 3-400 years after Jesus certain beliefs and so in those councils certain beliefs were considered canonical and were um, accepted as canonical others were heretical and so a person who still believed in those might have even been punished, the heresies. But the question is this, these differences of opinion, when they developed, they developed hundreds of years after the figure of that religion had passed away. In this case, the example that I'm giving you, like for example, Jesus' time. Okay, so is Jesus a, is Jesus a deity or not? These are things that were discussed. Trinity was discussed. There's different councils. Just look it up, councils of the Catholic faith. Um, the first one actually, uh, and I don't, I always forget how to pronounce this one, the Council of Nikia or something. Um, yes, that what happened in AD 325. The first council of, or maybe I might have mispronounced it, Nicaea or Nikia, it's N-I-C-A-E-A, -E -A. anyway. Um, something tells me it's Nicaea or something. Anyway, it says it was a council of Christian bishops convened in a certain place. What were they talking about? Its main accomplishments were settlement of the Christological issue of the divine nature of God the Son, Jesus. So, and, and his relationship to God the Father. So this whole discussion, this debate that happened, when did it happen? It happened in 325 A.D., hundreds of years after Jesus. And it was decided on, yes, and people and they, they voted on it or decided on it. And after that, no one could question the, the, the divine nature and essence of Jesus, Son of God, okay? Same thing that we have in the Christian faith, we'll have in other faiths as well, we will have in Islam as well. Ayatollah Subhani is making this point here. He's saying, look, a lot of these discussions, a lot of these discussions, they happened after the Holy Prophet, he's saying, after revelation stopped. Okay, if these all came up later, no one is infallible. Everyone's going to use reasoning to try to figure out, to try to figure out what the truth is. Some will have one idea, others will have another idea. Yes? But this shouldn't be a pretext for us to call, point fingers at each other and call each other as people who've left, call each other people who've left, who have left the faith. 
It's a very good point he's making. Yeah, so sister is asking about certain extremists. She says, Salam Shaykh, so in the case of people who were in line with ISIS, we would say they were misguided, although some of the actions carried out were against the Islamic faith. It is hard to judge, okay? It is hard to judge. Sometimes certain actions will uh, push people to, yes, label others as people who've left the faith. Um, but technically, it might not be the case. In regards to your question specifically, I don't want to get into details, but what you're saying can be true. <coughs> I'm not going to dismiss it. Alright, so um, let me continue this. So this is very important what he says. He says, for many, for many of the principles over which there are differences of opinion pertain to theological questions that were expounded some considerable time after the period of Revelation. Each group having for its own position certain arguments and supporting evidence. Yeah. Therefore, there should be no reason whatsoever for these questions becoming the cause of mutual takfir. Yes? Calling each other out. Or tafsiq. Saying that he's a sinner. That person's a sinner. No, 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 no. Which rupture the unity of Islam. That's, you know what's really bad is that each denomination within itself even has these issues. Sometimes even political um, inclinations and political affiliations will go against each other. And that will be grounds for people to point fingers at each other and push each other out. You know, even uh, when the some of these extremists, it's crazy, that the whole world sees as extremists, sometimes within themselves they, they call each other kafir. <laughs> It's just like, it's just become a game really. It's become funny. It's uh, how far they go. You know why brothers and sisters though, one of the reasons for this is, and it's unfortunate to say this, and it's not just something that you know has to do with today, it's been in the past as well. When you, for whatever reason, are fighting others, when you want support from your own people, and help from them to fight others, the first step, if you're Muslim, for example, the first step to get support of others is to do what? Is to prove that the opposition is not Muslim even. Yeah? If you can do that, then you'll get support from your people. And that's why, unfortunately, throughout history, within Islam, and out, even outside of Islam, these barriers and boundaries have always been boldened by people who had interests and agenda in making this disunity and causing it. Because once you can push the opposition outside of the fold of Islam, it'll be easier for you to get, for you to get support to fight them. Yeah? And so till today you'll find this. If people, you'll never say, you never, usually you won't see an extremist who is taking the life of another Muslim, you'll never see them say, yeah, I'm taking the life of another Muslim. You know what they'll say? They'll say, I'm taking the, the life of, another, of, a, of a kafir, of a non-Muslim. While that person that he's taking the life of, might be saying that they believe in God. They believe in the oneness of God. They believe in the Holy Prophet. They believe in uh, the res resurrection and the hereafter. They believe in everything. The Quran, the Kaaba, everything. Yet, no, no, no. Since you're non-Muslim, I am, I am allowed to take your life. You won't find them say, I'm taking the life of Muslims. They'll say, these are all kuffar, and that's why we're taking their life. 
So yes, sometimes these interests also play a role in all of this, unfortunately. The best way of resolving differences, as stated above, he says, is rational debate and discourse. That's the best way to do it. Away from bias and trying to be as impartial as possible. It says that he says that, and he brings it, he cites a good verse for this. He says, the Quran says, Ya Yuhaladina Amanu, Ida Daraptum Fisabilah Fatabayanu. Wala taqulu liman alqa ilaykum as-salam lasta mu'mina. Yeah, just because now you're going out during the Prophet's time, if they were going out to fight, for example, um, now that you're going out to fight, that means everyone's against you. And even if people are extending peace towards you, a peaceful hand towards you, don't be like, oh no, 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 you are not a mu'min, that's why we're going to take your life. No, hear them out. Try to be as inclusive as possible. It says, O you who believe, when ye go forth in the way of God, be careful to discriminate. Be careful to discriminate. And say not unto one who offereth you the greeting of peace, thou art not a believer. So then you can take their life after that. No! The Holy Prophet, in the course of explaining the foundations of Islam, said that no Muslim has the right to declare another Muslim a kafir or a mushrik only on account of the commission of the sin by the, of sin by the latter. You're a sinner, you're a kafir. You don't believe in what I believe in, you're a kafir. No, 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 no. And this is where scholars really need to get together and figure out what, are, what constitutes faith. And unfortunately they have, it's just that the people out there sometimes just don't listen because they're influenced by people with agenda. Yes, it's, it's clear as day that, they, that Islam is not something people you know, are very fond of. Um... People, meaning those who are enemies of Islam, are not fond of. And so, uh, they'll try their best and they will send people who might be scholars, but they're really wolves in sheep's clothing, to sway certain masses so that they fight other Muslims, unfortunately. And if you ask them why, they'll say, our scholars said that they're all kafir, they're all non-Muslim. Yeah? It's unfortunate. You'll have that bunch. But the majority of proper scholars out there, I think they all agree that what, what, what the main elements of a Muslim are, or of Islam are, are what? Belief in the oneness of God. Belief in the Qur'an. Belief in the Holy Prophet. And belief in the in resurrection and hereafter. That's about it. And the Muslims out there all believe in these things. But it, it's so crazy how, according to some, if you look at the definition of Islam, only... of all the Muslims out there are actually Muslim. What is this? What kind of religion is this going to be then? This does not seem what the Holy Prophet had in mind when he started his mission. Alright. That's Article 122. Article 123 now just straight up addresses the elephant in the room. And that is... the idea and notion of bid'ah, innovation in religion, because this is one of the main reasons why people are labeled as kafir, although they bear all of those beliefs that I just talked about, God, oneness of God, Quran, Prophet, Ma'ad, and resurrection. They believe in all of that. But because of certain practices they have, because of certain things they do maybe, they are labeled with bid'ah, right? And since you have brought bid'ah, bid'ah is misguidance. Misguidance equals leaving the fold of religion. You're not Muslim. 
And so it's unfortunate you will find that lives are lost across the globe. Over what? Over some of the most nonsense things that you could, you could care less about. But because the term bid'ah is brought and put on there and they're labeled as bid'ah, yes, hurting others will, will be sanctioned and allowed, unfortunately. This, what kind of Islam is this? So you'll see, for example, somewhere in, I don't know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, like a wedding is raided and people are, lose their lives. Why? Because, because what they're doing is bid'ah, for example. Or a better example would be, for example, there is a, uh, a celebration for the birth of the Holy Prophet. This is seen as bid'ah because it's bid'ah. Taking people's lives is sanctioned now. We'll get into some examples as we go forward. Or I'll explain some of these things that I just said as we go forward. First, let's talk about the definition of bid'ah. This, this justification for calling others kafir, pushing them out of the fold of Islam. It says the Arabic word bid'ah signifies a new or original action that has no precedent. It's an innovation. One by which a degree of excellence or perfection in the performer of the action is demonstrated. Thus, one of the names of God is Al-Badi'ah. Okay, excuse me. So, first he gets into the, the lexical uh, definition of it. Bid'ah means to do something that's unprecedented. And because it's unprecedented, yeah, it shows that the person who did it is higher than others, is more perfect and excellent than others. Why? Because others weren't able to do it and that person was able to do it. So for example, the Qur'an refers to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as Badi'u samawati wal ard. Badi'ah comes from bid'ah. That Allah is the one who created the heavens and the earth such that they, it's unprecedented. Others have not been able to do such. Okay? So it has a good connotation to it here. But once we move forward and we see where else it's used, then all of a sudden it becomes a negative term. It says, but the conventional meaning of the term refers to any action which is deemed to fall outside the boundaries of the sharia. The most concise definition would be as follows, establishing a practice as part of the religion when it is not so. For you to say that something is part of religion when you don't have any reason for that. Committing bid'ah is a major sin. There is not the slightest doubt about its being prohibited. The Holy Prophet said, Every newly originated thing is a bid'ah. Yeah, kullu muhdathatin bid'ah. Anything that you create, that you invent, is a bid'ah. And of course he's talking about the religion, or else he doesn't mean that you can't go invent things. Oh, the light bulb, someone invented it, that's bid'ah. No, <laughs> that's not what is meant, that's funny. He's talking about the religion. Anything that wasn't there before and now is created, innovated, is a bid'ah, he says. And every bid'ah is misguidance and going astray. So, وَكُلُّ بِدْعَةٍ ضَلَالَةٍ The hadith goes on to say. And every misguidance ends up in the, hell, in the hellfire. وَكُلُّ ضَلَالَةٍ فِي النَّارِ Misguidance means exactly that, brothers and sisters. When you're guided to the path, right path, that means you reach the destination, which is Jannah. Anything outside of Jannah is Jahannam. So misguidance equals Jahannam. So once again, he says anything that you innovate that is unprecedented in Islam and you add it to, to the faith, this is misguidance. This, excuse me, this is bid'ah. 
And every bid'ah is misguidance, and every misguidance leads to Jahannam and the hellfire, very clearly. Okay. So it's very, very frowned upon. All, all denominations of Islam frown upon it. But, the question is this. What exactly does bid'ah mean? I'm not going to get into this. I'm going to end a little sooner today. Um, because if I get into this, it's going to take a while. But I will say this, before, so that we're ready for, it, for the discussion next week. I will say this, that there's a big question out there. What exactly are the boundaries of bid'ah? Okay, the Prophet said anything that's unprecedented. Question. The Holy Prophet, did, do we have a hadith where he says, I want you to celebrate my birthday? No, we don't. So, does that mean that every time someone celebrates the Holy Prophet's birthday, because this has something to do with religion, right? This is a bid'ah? Another example. Question. When you go to Mecca, right, you want to climb the Mount of Hira. You want to, you want to climb that mountain. Where the Holy Prophet, you want to go to the, excuse me, you want to go, uh, you want to climb Jabal al-Nur, the mountain of Nur, and go to the, the cave the cave of Hira, where the Holy Prophet would uh, worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Question, do we have a hadith for that? Do we have the verse of the Quran for that? Right now if you go to Saudi Arabia, you go to Mecca, at the bottom of this mount or mountain, you will find that they've written that this, going up this mountain, this is not something the Sahaba would do. And so, in other words, this is bid'ah. Question. If I want to go up there and do two rak'ah of salat up there in that cave, is this bid'ah or not? Because, hey, we don't have a hadith for it. We don't have a verse of the Qur'an for it. So it is something that's unprecedented. It is something that's made up. So does that mean that this is bid'ah now or not? These are all questions that have to be answered. The only way to answer them though is to figure out exactly what constitutes bid'ah. Theologically, legally, from a shari'i perspective, what constitutes bid'ah. There are answers to this brothers and sisters and other examples like these that inshallah we'll get into uh, next week. Yes. Once again, I remind all of you that, uh, I just want to remind you that we do upload all of these sessions. They are uploaded on Facebook, YouTube, podcast as well. And inshallah, if you need to follow us there, you can follow us there. Till next week, keep us, keep us in your du'as. Thank you very much for tuning in. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.